Good morning, everybody. In honor, I believe, of Women's History Month, um, there was a request that I talk about gender, talk about women, practice. And I think this afternoon at LCS and the Love Circle Sangha 7A, we'll also be coming in and talking about the feminine in practice. So um, this morning, I wanted to talk uh, about a set of um, teaching stories that focus on women. Um, in Zen, <coughs> our formal teachings, perhaps this is the way it is in other uh, religions as well, come to us through a collection of stories. So we, we, we have our storytelling tradition in Zen. Uh, it's, and they're, the, the stories are uh, made up of our family of practitioners who have come before us. So, the, so this lineage that has come before us comes alive again through these teaching stories. And these family stories that we tell are typically uh, the setup of the story is, is pretty consistent. It's a story of one or more practitioners in a meeting with a teacher. And through their interaction, uh, the Dharma is revealed. And these stories, these Zen stories, which we call koans, most of them that have been told over the years for uh, centuries, really, come through three uh, classic collections, formal collections and collections from uh, Chinese. Um, they're, they're, they're from the um, Blue Cliff Record, Book of Serenity, and Gateless Gate. And these were collections from the 12th and 13th centuries. <clears throat> and in each of these stories, there's also a commentary. So the author or some other person comes in and comments on the story, and then through that commentary further reveals the Dharma. <clears throat> and to this day, if you go to many Zen communities, the Dharma talks are really all focused around these teaching stories from medieval China. So, you know, at Zen Center, we are in this ongoing exploration. How do we make these very traditional teachings from <coughs> a long time ago and these forums, you know, including this, <laughs> um, relevant for our communities in Brooklyn now? You know, and I, I wanted to share that for myself, you know, as a woman, in this century, practicing as a layperson in an apartment in Brooklyn, I really always had trouble with these koans. <laughs> these, because most of them are, well, basically, they're almost exclusively male characters from monasteries in medieval China. So I, I would just get caught up by this, by often this very traditionally masculine playfulness you know, this dharma combat um, in which they would engage. And through this dharma combat, some great revelation would happen. And um, so I would have trouble understanding the cultural context. Hi, Keith. <laughs> and I really tried hard to translate these stories so that I could access them. But mostly I couldn't. <laughs> so I just resisted engaging with them. I just ignored them. And yet, every time I walk into the library at 
at Tassajara or here, it's almost like I could feel these family ancestors calling to me, that they had something for me, some gift for me. If only I could dissect and figure out what this cultural divide was that kept me from getting these, this wisdom, you know, that all of my teachers and all of the talks would always explicate. But just somehow it was out of my reach. So, you know, when I picked up this book, Hidden Lamp, I'm feeling emotional already. It's surprising. I, I, I felt like for the first time I could kind of find a door in. So as you can see, something even now stirs inside of me when I think about the kind of gift of this particular um, offering to our practice. And I can sense, you know, when I read these stories, this thread, this thread that now can begin to connect me to these incredibly beautiful family members and me over here. So I have just tremendous gratitude to Florence Kaplow and Susan Moon, who edited this collection. And this was not an easy thing to put together. These women were truly invisible, you know, and I think they spent years combing through s historical records to find these examples. And I think they came up with almost twice as many as they put in the book, which was wonderful. And, um, and then what they did, which was even more lovely for me, which is they, um, they brought commentaries in of women. All the commentaries are from Buddhist women of this century. And these commentaries are from women of different ethnic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different sexual identities. They're from women of different traditions. They're, uh, I think, the, there's like 13 countries represented by these female teachers. And these teachers that comment are also not just priests. They're nuns and they're lay women. And so uh, it's just wonderful because also their commentaries are about how these particular stories um, come alive in their own practice life. So they're very personal as well. And that was encouraging for me. <clears throat> so I wanted today to, um, in this tradition of using a koan, to see if we can find something useful for each of us here today. I'm going to read one of the koans from this collection called Chiono, Chiono's No Water, No Moon. So this is from uh, Japan from in the 13th century. And here's the story. <clears throat> Chiono was a servant in a Zen convent who wanted to practice Zazen. One day she approached an elderly nun and asked, I'm of humble birth. I can't read or write, and I must work all the time. Is there any possibility that I could attain the way of Buddha, even though I have no skills? The nun answered her, This is wonderful, my dear. <laughs> In Buddhism, there are no distinctions between people. There is only this. Each person must hold fast to the desire to awaken and cultivate a heart of great compassion. People are complete as they are. 
If you don't fall into delusive thoughts, there is no Buddha and no sentient being. There is only one complete nature. If you want to know your true nature, you need to turn toward the source of your delusive thoughts. This is called Zazen. Chiono said with happiness, with this practice as my companion, I have only to go about my daily life practicing day and night. After months of wholehearted practice, she went out on a full moon night to draw some water from the well. The bottom of her old bucket, held together by bamboo strips, suddenly gave way and the reflection of the moon vanished with the water. When she saw this, she attained great realization. Her enlightenment poem was this. With this and that, I tried to keep the bucket together, and then the bottom fell out. Where water does not collect, the moon does not dwell. So I find this story very encouraging. First, Chiono is a servant. Many of the women in uh, this collection are in traditionally invisible women. They're servants, they are uh, old women walking down the road, they're sex workers. And you know, I, I feel this way and can feel this way. When we're practicing, many of us feel that our, the wisdom of these teachings is outside of ourselves. That um, it's to be found in some guru or some teacher or some credential ex expert mindfulness, maybe. <laughs> and if you look on the television or go to most schools or institutions, really the most visible person you'll see uh, as an expert is still a highly educated white man. And for me, it's a strange thing to be sitting here <laughs> in terms of my own conditioning. I was really brought up in a way that um, encouraged me to not trust my own wisdom. So I was raised in the 1960s as a woman in a working class family. And I was really taught both explicitly and implicitly that um, wisdom came from the other and that it was just my job to kind of passively receive it and not uh, question it in any way. So koan practice is not about getting some pre-digested answer that's just handed it to you and then you take on and repeat. It asks you to actually, it, it requires you to engage your own, um, your own body, your own mind, your own heart, and, and kind of play with it. So I, I didn't know how to do this. <laughs> and I particularly didn't know how to do it when it was these strange people from a long time ago in a different setting. So what would happen to me is I would try to read these koans and I would get pissed, you know, I'd get frustrated. My mind would go blank and, you know, sometimes I even felt, uh, uh, shame and uh, alienation uh, that somehow I, you know, I was outside of this understanding. Uh, Norman Fisher, in the preface to this book, he talks about something that I thought was really helpful. I'd never heard uh, talked about before, that in Buddhism and Zen, in particular, these two kinds of teaching styles. There's this style called the grasping way 
uh, which is a teaching style um, that really s gives you very little information. You know, sometimes people get frustrated at, at Zen Center, you know, because you come in and you do service and nobody just spells it all out for you, you know. They want you to kind of struggle and figure out and pay attention. And sometimes it can be very useful to kind of frustrate, you know, that part that needs to know everything and try to engage in that way. It also, as Norman says, this grasping way is really about finding things on your own, like the solitary hero who comes in and, you know, through his own solitary struggle, wakes up. And then, um, and he says that most of the koans in these traditional books are really kind of using a teaching style that way. And then he says um, that there is this other style, this other tradition called what she calls the granting way. And, um, and, and, and it kind of frames awakening as a relief, really, as a um, fundamental okayness in how things are. And it's a teaching style that is very explicit. It's very supportive, right? You know, just like the nun said, oh, my dear, <laughs> it's okay, you're okay. And um, that it emphasizes, this aspect of our teaching emphasizes our shared humanness together. So uh, I think it's important to pay attention to what supports us and what we need at a particular moment. I have sometimes needed the grasping way. You know, I have needed to be told to go back and not be given a clear answer. but. I have to say, um, given my conditioning uh, as a woman, and just for various reasons, um, I really appreciate this granting style, that it, it teaches me to relax and tight, that part of me that tightens around the struggle kind of quiets down. Like it's just like being given a, like a warm meal, you know, <laughs> all spelled out for me. So, and, in this story, not only is the style um, very useful for me, but the story of Chiono uh, felt like a dharma that spoke to my own cultural experience. You know, my ancestors uh, were uh, Irish servants, and my mom and dad actually were public servants. And so when I hear Chiono as the heroine in this story, you know, it feels like somehow I could more easily enter into this story because of that. And, you know, the Buddha talks about using skillful means, um, looking and finding ways to speak to each person in a way that they can connect to it. <clears throat> so I appreciate this warm style of this wise nun. She says, everyone is welcome. Everybody is capable of being enlightened. That this path of the Dharma is not just for people with a sophisticated intellect. It's not just for people who can like run off to the monastery who are free enough to do that. And it's actually not for people only that have the luxury and means to like schedule a very expensive, luxurious retreat in an exotic setting. You know? The Dharma is for everyone. And in that vein, uh, I, I wanted to talk about something, you know, though we are in the very beginning stages in this Sangha, I, and I, we have a way long way to go, uh, I'm really proud that our aspiration in 
this Zen Center is to really create a culture that's welcoming for everybody. And, you know, I think sometimes in many Dharma centers around this country, the thought is, is like, okay, if I'm just open-hearted and I'm welcoming and I smile when people walk in the door, that that's enough. But as Chiono's teacher says, it must include deep studying and a thorough consciousness of our delusive thoughts. So in our current world, we understand, we are coming to understand, I think we're beginning to understand, how the ways we embody gender, the ways we embody race, the ways we embody class, the ways we embody our sexual identity are important and important to study. And that's part of what will allow us to be welcoming or not. Because our conditioning, if we don't look at it, causes harm and, and at times makes people feel excluded, even with our best intentions, even when we're smiling and opening the door and shaking someone's hand. So, what if this elder nun wouldn't have noticed Chiono because she was a servant? You know, it's hard to know because the records are a little unclear and this is just the case. But some people believe that Chiono is actually this um, very famous woman in our lineage called Myogai Niodai. And um, Mugai Niodai, see, I struggle. <laughs> this is where my conditioning really kicks in to, to hurt me. I have trouble sometimes pronouncing some Asian names. Boy, and that's been a real struggle for me. Talk about confession. I really struggle with it, and it's try really hard, but something gets stuck sometimes. But I know of her, and, and she gives me tremendous inspiration. She was the first Japanese woman um, to receive full Dharma transmission in our lineage. And she actually established the first Zen nunnery in Japan. So what if this nun ignored her, ignored her request. And we can ask ourselves, you know, well, who don't we notice? And who don't we take seriously because of our conditioning? But luckily, for all of us, this elder nun did really meet her full humanity, Chiona's full humanity. And she told her something. She said, all you need to do is stay connected to your deep aspiration, cultivate a heart of compassion. And then she offers a very specific practice, and this is what is really what I want to focus on today. She said, in order to know your true nature, you need to turn to the source of your delusive thoughts, these, these thoughts that create a self. And you know, it's so sweet because this meeting of this nun and this servant is the full expression of our bodhisattva vow. You know, right there, there is the example of how might we each, how might we in each moment, you know, when we're in here, when we're walking out the door, 
in getting a cup of tea when we're walking down the street? How do we treat each moment as an opportunity for love, for compassion, and for awakening? So this nun did not miss that moment. And perhaps for Chiono, this is the only teaching she ever heard. As a servant, if we just want to imagine, maybe she didn't know how to read or write. Maybe she never had permission to go into the meditation hall. Maybe she didn't have any time or accessibility to formal teachings. While passing a nun, perhaps while she was cleaning the temple, she got this one and only opportunity. <clears throat> and these days, you know, it, it kind of is awesome and disturbing at the same time. All you have to do is turn on the computer, and you have access to hundreds, maybe thousands of Dharma teachings. On the YouTube, right? You just go to YouTube, and you plug in a teacher's name, and you hear these videos, and you see these people teaching. I mean, a Dharma book is coming out every day, yes? So thousands of Dharma books all teaching us. And there's hundreds of tradition, I mean, um, hundreds of teachers from all traditions. There are local retreats, national retreats you can go to. I think there's maybe dozens of Dharma centers in New York City. And you know, I, I, I want to say I, I'm really grateful to have an abundance of the Dharma. I think this is a really good sign. And I'm personally grateful. I, I, because of the way San Francisco Zen Center is organized, I've got to study with many teachers, teachers, female teachers, male teachers. And I am really grateful because now at Brooklyn Zen Center, I, I have an opportunity more and more to, to study with teachers of color. Yet, in some ways, I kind of envy Chiono. <laughs> you know, her mind and heart could settle and plunge into one profound teaching. She returned to it over and over again, and it allowed her to free up her mind and her heart and get straight to the bottom of the bucket. So I want to say that because sometimes I think the availability of all these teachers and all these centers and all of these teachings actually has a downside. And, and what we can do is kind of bring a consumerist mentality to our dharma. And what we do is we pick and choose teachings that might align with the way we already think about things, with the identities we already have. And then what we might do is as soon as something gets uncomfortable, you know, we can pop out and go to another center, to another teacher, and not sit and confront the, um, the, the, the gift of the struggle and the challenge and the rupture sometimes when things are comfortable or difficult. You know, we can view the Dharma as a product that we buy, or unfortunately, we view the Dharma as a product we can sell. <laughs> and, you know, we, I, I, I know this way, you know, we can, I've, I've felt this embarrassingly enough, you know, done that, oh, I've known, yeah, I've had enough readings about compassion, I, I know that, you know, let me find something more sophisticated, more juicy, more different, you know, and that just, is just part of the same thing. So this koan, this teaching story, points us back to how one teaching, sincerely and diligently followed through, can take us where we need to go. 
So the other piece I think that's very relevant for us is, you know, Chionu is not at this point a renunciate. She has a full-time job. Well, she works in the monastery, but what does she do in the monastery? She cleans all day. She says, I have no time. How am I going to do this? I have no time to practice. No time. I'm, I'm cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. After all, up after all you nuns. <laughs> Maybe she, you know, even had to go home at night. Who knows? To a to a family or um, and take care of her own house. So wondering how busy she is. How could she attain the way? And of course, we all relate to this, right? How can we find time to meditate and to study with the very important things we need to do to just survive? Uh, and we know that the practice offers us this freedom if we can find the time. But it's actually, uh, while we need time, the other point I want to make is we need courage. Because, you know, um, I always hesitate to say this in a beginner's talk, you know, because I want people to come back. <laughs> but I, I think there's, People know the usefulness that to go towards something that takes courage. Because what the practice asks us to do is actually go towards what's painful. Go towards what we have through our selfing um, created a whole lifetime to avoid. And it takes discipline, to be honest, to see and feel things we don't want to see and feel. And, um, and we need each other to do that. Some people get turned off by the forms of Zen. You know, we, have a, we say we have to show up at this time and we have to sit this way and come to the Zendo and when you don't, please tell the Eno why not. And yet, what we're doing here is just um, not toughness for toughness sake, you know, to make us stronger in this outside way. But what we want to do is offer an outer discipline so that we can develop this inner discipline, this inner discipline to keep showing up and sitting with what's sometimes, you know, very difficult. To help us return to our aspiration. And our aspiration is really just to wake up to what we already know and, we're, and to remember what we already are. We are already awake. Through our conditioning, we just don't remember that. So we have to go through all of this, you know, put on our robes and sit down to zazen and struggle with what gets in the way of us recognizing this. But the nun knows this, and she tells Chiono that beings are already complete. They simply have to see their conditioning clearly. <clears throat> so she says again, people are complete as they are. If you don't fall into delusive thoughts, there's no Buddha and no sentient being. There's only one complete nature. Turn to that source. So both liberation and conditioning are present as one. And we can be free even within all of this stuff. So our vow is to turn to our conditioning, the conditioning, the way our parents have conditioned us, the way our family has conditioned us, the way our relationships have conditioned us, and the way our socially enforced identifications have conditioned us, whether around race, class, gender, whatever. We have to turn toward those aspects of the self and open up to them. 
And you know, this work of the Bodhisattva vow to free all beings for me has a very renewed rel relevance um, in all of this violence. But the tricky part is it's not enough to know about the violence. It's not enough to like intellectually have a good idea, have a good education and talk about the violence. We have to deeply explore all the ways we have internalized the language and behavior that quietly supports violence. So, for example, you know, I used to feel pretty okay about my awareness and understanding about issues of class, gender, and race. You know, as a social worker, I worked in an organization around gender issues. I, you know, was a women's studies major, yes. And I, I've gone to many things, and I do have some understanding. But here at BCC, uh, we, were, we were prompted to do our own work, to do our own work to look at ourselves and study privilege. And I have to tell you that, um, and it is a form of encouragement and also a little bit of embarrassment, you know, that I have felt a lot of fear, a lot of pain, a lot of disorientation in doing this study. And And this happened as I began to sincerely and more deeply try to feel into my embodied experiences as a white person, as a woman, as a bisexual, and as somebody who grew up working class. I was shocked about how much there was there still. And, you know, I, I, I believe we think we know all about this, you know. <laughs> but I would say we don't, you know, if I'm, I'm an example. Um, not until we have gone through this process of, of deeply examining, and again, not intellectually. And this is what I, I'm so um, motivated and inspired because I believe our, our practice, the practice is one which creates uh, technology for doing this, you know, so that it doesn't stay intellectual. And it helps us to see how we impact others, and that's why we do it in a sangha together. <clears throat> so even though I'm committed to it, I love it, I'm excited about it, um, some part of me, <clears throat> as I began to do it, started to uh, feel hesitant. <laughs> so what happened for me is I began to like bump up against these walls of protection, again, seeing more clearly. And I can see it when, other, when it happens for others. I, you know, you can feel it, like, oop. <laughs> you know, and it was almost like there was a war inside of me. I had this on one hand, you know, I had my deep aspiration and, and all of the heart and compassion that I have managed to, you know, cultivate all through the years of practice. And then on the other side, I had this conditioned wall. And I want, I could see the part of me that just wants to hold back, and I think this is true for all of us. I want to stay in my safety zone. Oh, let me go back to my safety zone. I don't want to go there, you know? And so it just kept, I just, you know, I'm still, still in that battle. You know, I would rather be cooking and cleaning right now. That feels so good for the 
ancestry of me, of my servants, than to be sitting right here. This terrifies me. And everybody who's listened to me talk knows I say it every time. That's going against my, my safety zone, going against my conditioning. So, but thankfully to the bravery of, of people at Zen Center, to the aligned communities of color, you know, that all have the same inspiration to awaken. All of that, all of that support helps kind of keep me in the, keep me in the, in the struggle. Um, <clears throat> there's a beautiful document in development for BCC, Victory and others have worked on, um, which is how do we create a brave space for ourselves for this. And in the document it says, we each carry different histories, traumas, and experiences of oppression. To be together requires risk, vulnerability, pain, and discomfort. The thing is, these histories are our humanness. We're not, they are not separate, and we are not separate from it. So how do we hold harm, not humanness, and open-heartedness, and non-harming together? I used to ask my teachers this, like, how do I you know, be able to express myself and not harm. And what I've come to realize is we have to be very patient and very courageous in this process of studying delusion, whatever we're studying. You know, we have to give voice to who we are. We can't just stay this silent servant in the hallway. But we have to ask life for its truth, and we have to do this by asking, by talking. So she had the courage to ask Chiono. Um, she took herself seriously enough to check out and, and struggle with liberation. So this wise teacher nun, and you notice this teacher doesn't even have a name. This woman doesn't have a name in this story. But she points to the way for Chiono. She said, practice wholeheartedly, bringing intention, the intention all of us today brought an intention here. Hold on to that. That'll help. And compassion. Bring all of that to the delusion, to the conditioning. And then, as the story goes, one evening under the moonlight, something suddenly gave way. So it's also a tradition to, um, once you're enlightened, you have an enlightenment poem, yes? <laughs> And you also have a death poem, by the way, on your deathbed. So this was Chiono's enlightenment poem. With this and that, I tried to keep the bucket together, and then the bottom fell out. Where water does not collect, the moon does not dwell. With this and that, I tried to keep the bucket together, and then the bottom fell out. How do we hold our buckets together? So for me, holding my bucket together was um, looking like I was a good person and protecting that very compelling but suffocating identity. So I braced against anything that brought me into contact with something that might knock down that identity. I really want to be good. <laughs> it's probably brought me here. You know? <laughs> so our conditioning also helps our awakening. Um, so how and what 
do you control in order to keep your identity together? And you can tell what it is because as soon as it gets threatened, ooh, you get a big response. So as I began to open my eyes and my ears and this, see this stance of needing to be good, and I saw it everywhere, it is just hard. Um, and this is a lot about conditioning around whiteness and womanhood. And when I was stuck in being good, it kept me from taking responsibility for my impact. But the wonderful part is that I'm, I'm beginning more and more, and this is true for each of us, wherever we're waking up from our delusions, is I'm starting to see my mind and my heart and the world a little bit clearer. Kind of like, you know, when you have a smudge on your glasses, you know, and you clean them off and you think, how could I have walked around with that smudge, seeing through those dirty lenses for so long, right? So this is the good news, and the ending is a good, a good, a good news story, as they say in Catholicism. My Buddhist um, commitment, my practice, let the bucket start to fall apart for me. And falling apart is really necessary. We don't want to fall apart, and yet we have to fall apart. And so for me, falling apart is about not knowing. Falling apart is about being challenged. Falling apart is being wrong. Falling apart is being humbled. And as we feel pain and poignancy around this, and we are going to be messy in the process, there is no way around it. So can we let ourselves be messy? So uh, to end, she says, where, moon, where water does not collect, the moon does not dwell. So um, the moon is usually viewed as enlightenment. And Chiono's awakening was so strong that she didn't even hang on to insight or, or uh, realization. And this is important because what, before awakening and after awakening, our work is our life. It's no different. And the, the good news is once we can begin to break through our defensiveness, our resistances, our need to be good. There is a relief and a renewed energy that comes. Because we don't have to vigilantly and defensively tense up and, and kind of keep our bucket together. Then there's a suffering, a suffering, a softening that can happen too. There's a relief. Oh my God, this is such a relief. And then in the relief, we can like see more clearly, we can meet each other more fluidly and openly. We don't have to cut out other people's experiences. And then when we do that, when we meet each other and we feel like more connected, then we get renewed in our vow to end suffering. So the great thing is, you know, we can move from being good to resting in our essential goodness. Ha! <sighs> and that includes full expressiveness. It's not quiet. Yeah, it may be quiet, but it may be very emotional <laughs> uh, and expressive in all sorts of ways. And when we awaken from this grip of many selves, and the way we awaken is through not denying them, then we can meet the fullness of our being. And we don't let fear or anger, anger or hatred kind of collect in our hearts like water in a bucket. And the nice thing is, you know, as the nun and Chiono realize, 
you know, we get to see and really feel fully, not as a, not as a, like a, a politically correct line, but as a deep understanding that people really are complete as they are, whoever they are. So I took a lot of time. <laughs> Thank you for your patience. Yeah. Thank you. <coughs> and because I took a lot of time, do we have any time for questions? Do you know? We have what? We have lunch? Five minutes? Okay. So if anybody has any questions or thoughts about this. Yes, hi. It's a great question. And what came up as you were speaking was um, what I realized just as you were speaking is just like this nun, what helped me to realize my bucket wasn't broken was the reflection back of my teachers and of the teaching and of all the people in the Sangha who said, you know, you're not so broken. You're not so deluded. And could, could kind of point to that okayness. Uh, that, and that is what I needed in order to be able to kind of look at what really was broken or, you know, look at or start to work with my conditioning in a way that didn't generate incredible shame or guilt or uh, an idea that I had to kind of like generate a lot of control and start fixing myself. So, you know, I still believe my, my, you know, that I'm broken at times, you know, probably for the last hour before this talk, you know. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you know, luckily I have Greg as my husband. And, and all of you, right? And I think that's the other piece, which is, you know, it's so easy when we open up to others, this compassion and this delight in who they are arises, and we can see how, how incredibly they suffer from an idea that they're not okay when you can just see how beautiful they are. So that reminds me too, same with my clients, you know, in my clinical practice. Wow, it's so easy to love you, you know? You're not broken. And then I go, oh, I better apply that back to myself, you know? <laughs> so. It, it reminds me, you know, it's because of people like Chiono that there are people like Blanche and all the others, you know, that that, that, that is a continu continuity, continuity of a lineage. And that because of their bravery, they create the conditions where it's no big deal to see a lot of female teachers. And whatever we're doing here today and others are doing, you know, I want to see that there is you know, that kind of non-issue almost for people of color, you know, maybe on class, sexual orientation, that there is no longer some feeling like it's just looks and feels of one particular way. So um, we can be encouraged by that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, this reminds me of a really important point. You know, it's not just about women being up here. It's about what is allowed, you know, in a patriarchal frame to be up here. And um, so for me, you know, part of sometimes the pain at Zen Center was a feeling like there were some parts of me I couldn't bring in here. You know, my, uh, my emotions, for example. You know, and my mother once told me, you know, as soon as you start crying, I'm going to stop listening to you. You know, and this, then I would go to Zen centers, and Zen centers would say, you know, um, you know, when you're 
have a lot of emotion. You gotta look about like where are you stuck, you know. And I, I, I think that's true on some level, but it also, you know, everybody I looked at had this kind of evenness, you know, um, this even affect all the time. It's like where's the expressiveness, <laughs> you know, and and that's part of the conditioning. So there could be a, a milieu, you know, uh, that that that. Despite what you know, whatever somebody look, looks like over here, you know. So uh, it's yeah. Well, you know, I think in this these, these, this metaphor, we were talking about um, the water as as the conditioning, you know, um, on some level, and just kind of letting the conditioning not well up and tighten us, but let it pass through. Could you even see the water as our humanness, as our you know, let, letting the or life, letting life flow through us. So. Um, you know, it's a great question. Yeah. Are tears beautiful, Fran? Thank you. Yes. Yes, exactly. Beautiful. Yes. We need that, right? Yeah. You know, every time we sit down and, and face pain, we get this great chance to practice patience, compassion. So that's how we cultivate that. You know, we, you know, this violence, out there, you know, just page one, page two, page three, page four of the paper, you know, each time we get a choice. Do we tighten up against it, you know, holding our separate selves? Oh, that's over there, and that's about Trump, and this is about not about me, and this is about, you know, the Muslims, this isn't about me. Or do we open up our hearts, let them break, and kind of resonate with how much pain there is um, when we create that separation? And we all do it, you know. Maybe we do it in a, a kind of much more conscious or thoughtful or subtle way. But how do we keep like recognizing when we do it? Ooh, ouch. Just did it again. Huh? Okay. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.